turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 16. As we finish this chapter, make our way towards the end of John's gospel. And look at verse 16 with me in 16. And follow along if you have a Bible. And if you are visiting and you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the back of the room for you that you can use and feel free to take home as well. They're on the table in the back. Verse 16. A little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father." His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. It is not surprising to me that the disciples in this first section are confused. I spent two days reading it and was still confused, (laughs) trying to figure out what in the world is is going on here in this passage. 
But in context, remember that this is Jesus' last words to his disciples. This is his final discourse as he is literally within hours making his way to the cross. This is his final words to encourage and strengthen his disciples. These words, not sure if they happened in the upper room or they happened as they were making their way to the garden, but they are the words that Jesus uses to encourage these men who have been struggling Because once they entered the upper room, as we began reading in John 13, and Jesus began speaking about departing from them, leaving them, their sorrow increased. Their struggle increased because the Savior, the the friend, the Lord that they had followed for three years was leaving them. And all of their hopes and dreams wrapped up in Jesus being the Messiah. Now, the Messiah that they had envisioned is not the Messiah that Jesus had come to be. They envisioned a conquering Messiah, a Messiah who would conquer the Roman oppression that they suffered under. And all that they were hoping for is crumbling as Jesus says, I am leaving. These final words to his disciples are designed to help them not falter at the end. He speaks these words to prepare them for what is about to happen shortly, not only to him, but what is about to happen to them as well. He wants to bring them through their sorrow Because as he has said many times, he's returning to the Father. And in verse 28, really the the centerpiece of this passage that we're reading this morning, Jesus says these words. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. This is the great movement of the gospel. The the Son of God coming to earth, leaving the Father, and then returning to the Father. And behind this one verse alone is much of what we have studied over these past over the past year in John's gospel because this talks of of why he came John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son John 1:14 the word became flesh and dwelt among us John 10:15 I laid down my life for the sheep John 11:25 I am the re- resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me will not die. In John 16, 28, I'm leaving the world because it's all been accomplished when I go to the cross, go to the grave, and rise from the dead. Now time is short. The cross is looming and with great care for his friends, Jesus finishes up this discourse before he praise, as we'll see next week in John 17. 
And as I said at first, the words he speaks are confusing. And this happened many times in John's gospel. When he's speaking to his disciples, they just kind of, huh? And it's like, it's like one of those old cartoons with a question mark above their heads. That's how the disciples live. They live with a question mark above their heads. What is he saying now? What does he mean now? And time and again, Jesus says, you do not understand me now, but you will. You will eventually understand me. And as he continues speaking, some clarity begins to come to them. And we, we see that in verse 29. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. They, they get it. They're beginning to get it. Jesus is leaving them. It's not rocket science. He's leaving. But he's leaving for a purpose. He will soon die. And what he tells him is, not only will I die, but you will desert me. You will leave me. But it's not the end of the story. And what, what encouraging words these are. His death, his resurrection, his reappearing, his return to heaven, and his second coming. They are what complete the story. And that is that's what lives in this passage here those thoughts. And that's what Jesus explains to him. The the disciples are going to remain in the world after he is gone. A world that we see rejoices that Jesus is leaving. A world that is, is excited that Jesus is leaving. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, He will be sending us into the world. The same world that rejected Christ is the same world that rejects those who follow after Christ. The same world that would martyr them is the same world that will martyr us. That is who has been sent into the world is the Son of God and then us and his disciples. And as he promised, Jesus said in earlier in 16 that he would send another helper. As he said in, in 16 that he was going to help us through the Spirit to endure this, this leaving, to endure this world. Jesus is setting all of this up because the disciples are about to experience the worst experience of their time with Jesus. There's just a few hours away from crucifixion. It's just a few hours away from seeing everything they had hoped for and believed in ended. Imagine all the hope. Imagine all of the despair that these men are experiencing. The emotions that they're feeling. But Jesus, in his care and his love, in the midst of all of this confusion, and the midst of all of this difficulty, in the midst of all of this this thoughts and sorrow about Jesus leaving, he reminds them of the basic truth that he has not left them, he has sent the helper, and 
through that helper, they can once again continue to relate to the Father. Because we are united to Christ, when we pray, we will experience joy in the midst of sorrow. We will experience victory in the midst of failure, and we will experience peace in the midst of tribulation. Joy in the midst of sorrow. When a woman is giving birth, verse 21, she has sorrow. Look at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. The world will rejoice. Joy in the midst of sorrow because God hears our prayers. That is what what Jesus is telling these men. While the disciples are sorrowful that Jesus is leaving, the world can't wait for him to be gone. The world does not want Jesus back again. We live in a world that thinks it does very well without him. The world does not sorrow when Christians fail. The world does not sorrow when churches close their doors. The world does not sorrow when the name of Christ is defamed. The world does not sorrow. It rejoices Those who who are his disciples, though, do want to see him back again. Those who are his disciples will see him again, is what Jesus says. You will see me again. The disciples know what's at stake. They weep and they lament. A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament. The world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. And then he he goes into this illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And that's the, the comparison of how painful birth is. There's a reason men don't have babies. When a woman has a baby, she moves on, and and quickly her joy is there. If a guy had a baby, they would sit around and tell war stories of how bad it was. And they would get embellished over time. Oh, you think that was bad? When a woman has a baby, yeah, the, the pain of it, she's not thinking about having another child the following week. Although there are some that I've talked to. But as time goes on, the joy of that child, the joy of that child removes all sense of anguish and sorrow that she has experienced. And Jesus compares that to his leaving, that the sorrow you men will experience, the sorrow of my going oh, there's going to be a joy. Now, understand that that his leaving 
and the joy that they would experience, they will experience joy in just three days because the risen Christ will appear to them. But even that joy is tempered because it is not permanent. That joy is tempered because Jesus' remaining with them is only for about 40 days and then he returns to the Father. And so he's leaving again. And there's this sense that sorrow is, is in a sense permanent in the Christian life. There's, there's the joy of knowing Christ, but there's the sorrow that he is not physically here. That he is in heaven with his Father. And then that sorrow is because we live in a world that has fallen. We live in a world that is filled with those who rejoice that the Savior is gone. And we live in a world where we do experience sorrow. And it is a world that we will live in until we die that we will always experience some degree of sorrow. But there is a joy, Jesus promises, that will never be taken from them. So also you have, verse 22, sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That is, that is a double meaning there. Both you will see me again after the resurrection and you will see me again on the day I return. Joy in the midst of sorrow. And Jesus says, you're going to find this joy because in that day, he says, you will ask nothing of me. Now that word ask there in the Greek literally means to ask questions, not ask of things to provide, but to ask questions, which the disciples do all the time. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, and that word ask means to provide, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. In the midst of a world that has sorrow, in a world where we experience sorrow, Jesus tells us that we can have joy in the midst of sorrow when we pray. Because God hears our prayers and God answers our prayers. We can have joy because in verse 23, we see that the disciples and us have direct access to the Father. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father's name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. In other words, all, they, they've not asked the Father. They've not had a relationship with the Father. They've had a relationship with Christ. And Jesus says, look, my going, my death, my resurrection, my return, my intercession for you before the throne at all times, those things, you now have direct access to God, the Father. Brothers and sisters, that is the greatest gift apart from salvation that you can experience, that you have direct access to God, that you can talk to God the Father, that you don't need a mediator. It's already been mediated through the death of Christ. You can talk with God.
I don't know of two more guilt-ridden experiences in the Christian life than feeling like I never evangelize enough and feeling like I never pray enough. How many people, how many here pray too much? How many here feel like you don't pray enough? Yeah, is not that our world? And here, Jesus has simply said, look, the door is open. What more do you need? The pathway is clear. Come to the throne of grace for mercy and help and grace in time of need. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Oh, in in a world that we live in filled with sorrow, and it is sorrow in, in a variety of ways, it is sorrow on a variety of levels, Oh, just, I mean, on the, on the simplest, and I don't get why there's sorrow on this level, but, but you walk around on a Monday after a redskin loss, and there's sorrow. Every Monday, somebody said, yes. <laughs> Maybe almost every Monday. But we also experience the sorrow when a couple faces a miscarriage. Or the sorrow of a marriage that is seemingly crumbling at this moment. Or the sorrow of the pain of a debilitating illness. The sorrow of a family member that is wayward. Well, the sorrow of just simply standing for Christ and being ridiculed and mocked. There is sorrow in this world. And yet, joy in the midst of sorrow because our joy can be made full when we simply go to the throne of grace, to the Father, and ask. And, and brothers and sisters, let me say this to you this morning. There is a temptation. I know it's a temptation in my own heart at times where if I have, I have lacked prayer in my life, I have been busy and, and not prayed and have that feeling of guilt, there is this sense where, well, I haven't prayed and then this just prevents me from going to the throne of grace as though God really isn't interested in hearing me now because I haven't come for a while and he's just kind of holding back. And I have to somehow jump through some kind of hoops. But he is a father. He is a father. Is there a father in this room that would withhold from a child who comes to them asking something? Who would say, no, no, stay on the other side of the door for another day, then you can come in the room and ask me for something. We would never do that. And neither does our Father. The times we live in now will always be 
both times of sorrow and times of joy. But there is a promised joy that we can look to. And Jesus says it, is, it comes through prayer. True joy, perfect joy, joy that can never be taken away, will be joy which all Christians will experience when Jesus returns. J.C. Ryle said this, he said, the second personal advent of Christ, the return, second, the return of Jesus, to speak plainly, is the one grand object on which our Lord, both here and elsewhere, teaches all believers to fix their eyes. We ought to be always looking for and loving his appearing as the perfection of our happiness and the consummation, consummation of all our hope. Let the eyes of our faith always be fixed on his coming. It is not enough that we look backwards to the cross and rejoice in Christ dying for our sins and upwards to the right hand of God and rejoice in Christ interceding for every believer. We must look forward to Christ's return from heaven to bless his people and to wind up the work of redemption. Perfect, true, ultimate joy that will never be taken away awaits us awaits us at the return of Christ. We're going to live with joy and sorrow in this life. And joy is ours as we go before the Lord and pray. But more importantly, there is a day coming where He will appear again. And the joy that you experience today will pale in comparison. But until that final day, we can still know that joy is promised, that when we ask, our joy will be made full. So joy in the midst of sorrow. Secondly, Jesus tells these disciples that they can have victory in the midst of failure because Jesus has overcome. The disciples in verse 32 make a, or 29, make a grand statement to Jesus. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. And Jesus answered them, do you now believe? I mean, it was really with exasperation. Now you believe? Now, after all this, now you believe? But Jesus goes on to warn them about their comment. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come, his death, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. What irony. And even as he says this, and he warns them with sobering words, he says this. Look, you believe, now you believe. Listen. The hour is here, and you are going to fail. You are going to fail. What a seemingly, as I read this, I thought, what a horrible start to the church. What was God thinking when he chose us to bear his image and be his bride? Failure once again. What is so amazing about this passage is Jesus' commitment to the men who quickly abandon him. These are the very men who will be the foundation of the church. These are the men 
who in God's wisdom begin the church. They begin the church with a group of failed guys. And these guys who will soon be filled with the Holy Spirit will turn the world upside down. D.A. Carson said this, it is part of the character and genius of the church that its foundation members were discredited men. It owed its existence not to their faith, courage, or virtue, but to what Christ has done with them. And this they could never forget. This has not changed in 2,000 years. We are discredited. We are like these men. And yet Jesus turns our failures into victory by saving us, sanctifying us, and sending us into the world to be his witnesses. Verse 33, Jesus ends, But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus certainly has overcome the world. He's overcome the evil one who is intent on our destruction, who uses our failures to condemn us. Let us not be condemned by our failures, but find joy in victory because of what Jesus has done. Listen, all of us fail. All of us fail. We fail when we get angry with our children. We fail when we will not forgive those who hurt us. We fail with our selfish desires. We fail when we don't have a loving marriage. We fail in so many ways. And all of us battle daily the temptation to sin and failure. And God knows this. And he's made a way. He's made a way for, for victory over failures. And that is, again, through prayer. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1, 9. When we fail, where do we go? We go to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble. We go to Cold Stone Creamery to drown our sorrows in ice cream. Where do we go? We go to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. We go to the Lord. We confess our sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thirdly, not only do we find joy in sorrow and victory in failure, but Jesus tells us that we can find peace in the midst of tribulation because he's near. Verse 32. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world." 
peace in the midst of tribulation. Now, I looked up tribulation, and being the high-tech guru that I am, tribulation, a cause of great trouble or suffering, Synonym, suffering, distress, trouble, misery, wretchedness, unhappiness, sadness, heartache, woe, grief, sorrow, pain, anguish, agony, travail. He just said to us, in the world, you will have tribulation. But in me you will have peace. Earlier in John 14, 27, Jesus tells his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away. I will come and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. Here is a synopsis of of what we're reading right now. Jesus repeats this promise in verse 33, but with a bit of a change. He's just not leaving them his peace. He is reminding them of all that he has said and that they will find their peace in him, in their relationship with him, in their intimacy with him, in their time with him. And how does that happen? We pray. Jesus tells the eleven very plainly and honestly that they must expect trouble and persecution in the world. He doesn't hide from them that the way to heaven is not easy and smooth. He, he lets them know there is anguish and heartache and sorrow and pain and trial. Timothy, 2 Timothy, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. But Jesus doesn't leave them there. He says these words at the very end in verse 33, but take heart. Now, what, what do you take heart in? He says, take heart in, I have overcome the world. I've overcome the evil one. I have overcome the one who condemns. I have overcome the one who lies. I have overcome the one who deceives. I have overcome death. I have overcome sin. I have overcome the world. And that overcoming of the world is on your behalf. I have sent my, I will send my spirit to you Because you will overcome the world by the power of my spirit. And you will find peace in me. Be courageous. Cheer up. Be confident. Go forward without fear. The world has been defeated. In Christ, in me, you will have peace. And to be 
intimately with him means we talk to him. We dwell with him. The two most important things we can do as believers are to pray and to read God's word. J.C. Ryle said, All these things I have spoken for this one great end, that you may have inward peace by resting your souls on me and keeping up close communication with me. It is the one great secret in our religion to draw all our consolation from Christ and live on him. He is our peace. The world as these men know it is coming to an end in just a few hours. They will experience sorrow. They will experience failure. They will experience tribulation. And yet Jesus says, that's okay. That's okay, because I have given you direct access to the Father. I have made a way. I have mediated the way. I, have, I am going to the cross. I am dying for your sins. I am atoning for your sins. I am rising from the dead. I, have, I will be defeating sin and Satan. And I have made a direct access to God, the Father. Where when you do experience sorrow, your joy can be full. When you do experience failure, you can confess your sins and he will forgive. When you do experience tribulation, you can draw near to me and you will find peace. This is not an epistle. It is narrative, although it is a discourse. It is not, as you would read in Paul's letters or James or Peter, it's not teaching per se. So you don't find the kind of imperatives, the kind of commands. But I do believe there's one imperative in this section of Scripture. One imperative. That is to pray. That is that we commune with God. We speak to God. We talk with God. We fellowship with God. Five times in this passage, Jesus uses the word ask. He wants us to ask. He wants us to ask the Father in His name. In His name, not as a incantation or a superstitious add-on. Well, I said in Jesus' name, so it must work. No, to ask in his name is to recognize that we go to the Father based on his merit, not on ours. His righteousness, not on ours. They can speak directly with God the Father because Jesus has made a way. My friends, he loves you. You have direct access 
to the Father. He loves you. He loves you when you've failed. He loves you when you're sorrowful. He loves you when you struggle through tribulation. He loves you. And he wants you to find joy. And he wants you to find victory. And he wants you to find peace. So we should pray. Let me close with prayer. Father, thank you that you have made a way. That you have made a way through your Son. That you sent him into the world. He lived in this world. He died in this world. He rose from the dead in this world. He left this world. And now he sits interceding for us before your throne. And our prayers are heard by you, Lord. You are eager to hear our prayers and you are eager to answer our prayers because you are a good and gracious God. Lord, I pray for all those in this room that you would stir in them a fresh desire to pray, a fresh desire to draw near, a fresh desire to be close to you. And I ask this all in the name of your son, Jesus, and for his sake. Amen.